Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Podcast. Welcome to Live Above the Noise, the Choiceful Family Podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Yurcha, and I'm here with my podcast partner, developmental and educational psychologist and media expert, Dr. Rob Breyer. This is episode number 29. And if it's the first time you're joining us, we want you to know that we have created this podcast with one aim to help provide you with the new tools, skills, and strategies you need to protect your children and family and prepare them for a safe, happy, and meaningful future in our increasingly uncertain world. In other words, this podcast was designed to help you and your family live above the noise. Now, in our last episode, we had an important personal conversation with friend and colleague John Reed founder and CEO of We Are Sky, a company dedicated to pro-social elevated branding. And in that episode, we talked with John about his personal experience with racial injustice growing up as a person of color in Oakland, California, as well as the effect of such experiences on the development of self-identity and how certain power styles can contribute to institutional racism. Now, in this episode, we're delighted to have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Michelle Borba, one of the foremost authorities on childhood development in the country. And we'll be discussing a topic directly related to our last episode, and that is the critical importance of helping our children develop empathy. But before we get to that conversation, we want to introduce you to a new feature of this podcast that we're calling the Choiceful Minute, a one-minute insight about what we can all do today to increase our level of choicefulness, our awareness, ability, and control, in order to better live above the noise. So Rob, what is the choiceful insight for this episode? Today, Wayne, we're going to focus on the idea of something that we call the story. And what we need to understand is we often forget our own story, what we're about, how we're developing our lives, Because outside stories, the stories that surround us, stories in the media are designed to be very, very compelling. Eyeballs is the name of the game. Let's get people's attention. And those kinds of stories can draw us away from our own story. So what we want to make sure we do in order to increase our ability to be choiceful is to pay attention more and more to our family stories and each of the children and individuals in the family, what their particular stories are. To summarize, spend your time paying attention to your story, not so much the story that's designed to take you out of your story. Thank you for that, Rob. And now on to our conversation with Dr. Michelle Borba. Dr. Borba is an internationally renowned educational psychologist and an award-winning author of 22 books, including Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. She has appeared as an expert on the Today Show 140 times, as well as on Dateline, The View, Dr. Phil, Anderson Cooper, and countless other programs. Michelle, welcome to Live Above the Noise. We're so happy to have you with us today. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, you know, we've looked at all your tremendous material and your book, and what you said that really struck me was you said that developing a healthy sense of empathy is a key predictor of which kids will thrive and succeed in the future. I agree with you, but it sort of surprised me. I thought to myself, I wonder how many people and how many parents out there see empathy as something that, yeah, it's nice for my child to have it. I'm glad that people have it. But there are more important things out there like academics or various other things. And empathy is kind of put on the back burner as something that hopefully it develops, but there's no actual program to do so. In your view, why is empathy so important? Why is it a predictor of who will thrive and succeed in our world? Oh, thank you for asking, because when you look at why empathy matters, the list just goes on endlessly. We do know right now that empathy is one of the highest levels of success in school as well as in life. Unfortunately, it's been put on the back burner. We think of it as soft and fluffy, 
But in reality, when we look at the litany of new research coming out as to why empathy matters, there's a number of reasons. First of all, it's a healthier child. Kids who have empathy are mentally healthier human beings. We're looking at one in three of our children right now in North America are suffering some kind of a major anxiety or stress disorder that was prior to pandemic, folks. There are also kids who are more engaged and deeper learners in a classroom. That's why teachers are so excited about empathy and empathy training, because kids are looking at different sides and different points of view. They live longer lives. We've been looking at longitudinal studies on kids who really are the ones who grow up and live longer and longer and longer. Kids who have empathy actually have healthier relationships, and as a result, those healthier relationships sustain them. Harvard Business Review named this as the top employability factor. I just returned from Abu Dhabi, the Middle East, who flew me over because the Global Economic Summit named empathy as the top skill for the 21st century. We've all got to step up to the plate and realize it matters big time. Well, I agree with you, and I'm also really concerned, really, really concerned about that number increasing in the realm of narcissism. Yep. And my question to you would be, boy, if that's the case, and we're really seeing what a, I think it was a 58% increase in narcissism, what in the world, from your perspective, is going on? But what's the cause of narcissism? Because I think your span on that was 30 years or something. In the last 30 years, it's increased 58%. Why do you think that's happening? What's the major factor? Thank you for the question, because that is what made me write the book. I start to look at some research that was extraordinarily concerning. It was 72 different studies who were tracking American kids over 30 years. Now, whether you know it or not, when you're an incoming college freshman, you're given this little simple narcissism personality test. If you saw somebody who was being treated unfairly, how likely would you be to step in and, and speak out? Or if you saw someone who was being bullied, how distressed would you be? What they began to see, and this is critical, started primarily around the year 2000, and that's going to answer your question. Mm -hmm. And that is, empathy started to nosedive while narcissism, I'm better than you, started to spiral. Narcissism has gone up 58%. That is absolutely the most traumatic thing you could possibly imagine because to me, empathy holds the seeds of humanity together. It's the social fabric that holds a country together. So now let's backtrack and go, what the heck happened around the year 2000? We, first of all, always want to point to the smartphone. It had to be the smartphone. That is one contributor. And we're talking about why, because we discovered that one thing that helps fuel empathy is being able to focus on somebody else's face or their voice tone or their body language and go, oh, she looks distressed. But the longer we look down, middle school kids, by the way, are more comfortable texting than talking, the lower empathy scores go down. So one thing is our kids are technologically driven. There are some pluses to technology, but the more they're plugged in and not looking at the, the better sides of life or seeing all dismal news, that's another thing that takes empathy down. That's one factor. In addition, we got ourselves into academic fever. Everything was about the grade, the SAT score. There went play, there went sandbox starting at age two. And we do know that the seeds of empathy are also just play. It's my turn and it's your turn, getting along with others. Mm -hmm. A third thing that started to happen is we as parents started to get stressed. As burnout starts to build, empathy goes down, stress goes up, and we mirror that to our children. So our children are already mirroring that factor. The key is it's not one factor. There's multiples along the way. We also started praising our kids to death for you're so sweet and you're so special as opposed to thank you for being so kind and good. And we discovered that our praise and our words can either impact children's empathy or diminish empathy. And then finally, notice we are a little more anxious as a society these days. And anxiety, if it is not checked and stress continues to build, which it is with our kids. As stress builds, what happens if kids don't have a coping strategy? You dial your empathy down because you're in survival mode. Mm -hmm. You got to take care of yourself before you can take care of another. So it's not one thing, but it's this seismic shift that's happened and we're just not getting a hold on it. Mm -hmm. And as a result, empathy is going down. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we have something called the cycle of noise is what we call it. 
And we define noise as distraction, distortion, disruption, and overload. And Rob, maybe you could tell our listeners who have probably heard this before, but what the cycle of noise is, because I think this fits in directly to what you're saying, Michelle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, the point of view of the cycle of noise is, well, what's the future look like with regard to increasing noise? And so if the power partners, by that I mean the people that are running the capitalistic agenda so that more money is made from entertainment and media, and that's the money machine that's driving the media, if that increases and the money that is dedicated to media increases, then what you have is incremental information. That's part two of the cycle. So the incremental information and the incremental media keeps expanding. And when you have incremental information and incremental media, you keep having overload and stress and distraction and distortion and disinformation, all those things. And that leads around the cycle to compensation and coping. What do you do when you're overloaded? Because you're basically not hardwired at all to take in information processing at the same amount that it's coming at you. And then you compensate for the overload, which then shifts your value system and makes you more susceptible to values that aren't beneficial to growth. And what happens, you wind up with more noise because the value system is not filtering or responding appropriately to the incoming information. So our point is you have this cycle of noise that we don't see any current way that anybody's addressing the cycle of noise or doing anything about it for the future. And then simultaneously is the new levels of incoming technology, including virtual reality, where you're basically placed into the media. And if you put that combination together, you go, wow, okay, what does that mean for five, 10 years out if empathy now is declining and narcissism is increasing? And do you become part of the virtual worlds that you're about to enter with the new technologies? And what is the impact of that on narcissism and empathy? So to me, I'm going... I don't see anybody addressing this cycle of noise whatsoever on the planet and where it's headed from here. You're right on the mark on that. My head is nodding up and down, but you can't see it. (laughs) Because one of the things we also know with empathy, first of all, the more technologically driven a kid becomes, we are seeing that empathy levels are going down. The other thing is that you're looking at some of the elements that you talked about, meaning that character is also going out of the plate. It's all about stuff. Mm. We're looking at wealth factors. The wealthier you become, science is clear on this one. As wealth goes up, empathy goes down because you rely on stuff as opposed to people and things. We're looking at just social distancing that's just happening. And we're already realizing that we were a very lonely generation. Mm. Our children say, in fact, a report just came out today about what this has all done to them. They said they were already so lonely but they can't connect with people. And so the average kid is now online nine hours a day during all of this pandemic. Add all of that together in this seismic shift that's hearing this perfect storm that narcissism's going up, empathy's going down. And you mentioned one other thing, and that's burnout. As you keep, keep, keep trying to keep up, keep up, keep up, keep up with the noise and everything else and all the distractions, you just farther yourself further and further back from what really you need to sustain yourself and keep yourself up and burnout involves. So it's just a perfect storm and you nailed it. Yeah, it sure is. And you know, the other thing I I think that no one is talking about is we assume that we can process information no matter how much we have. Like, I think the data on that says attention span is about 120 bits of information a second. But a conversation, for example, would take 60 bits of that, and yet we have 11 million bits of information per second coming in. So the question then becomes, if I got all this information coming in, in all parts of me, body, senses, thinking process, all those parts of who I am, and I can only limit that to a designated amount, then what happens when entertainment and media dominate that incoming information and your attention span and then begin to modify the brain 
and rewire the brain according to who's making the money off of the domination of the incoming input in the entertainment and media industry. So most people think you have an unlimited supply of this cognitive ability to process, which you don't. So what we have then is this attention span and rewiring issue on top of everything else. Uh, Well, there's another point on that one. And that is when I wrote on selfie and I saw that empathy was going down, the big thing is first critical, realizing that all of research says it can be cultivated. So I think the first thing is don't go washing your hands and raising the white flag and saying we can't do a darn thing. We're hardwired for it. But unless we're intentional about nurturing it, Mm. it will lie dormant. And that's why a lot of us are in sleep mode. That said, number two, it's a different world. And we know that. I mean, Mayberry is long dead (laughs) and our kids are very, very wired. But what's also happening, as you point out, is that empathy needs curiosity because empathy is we, not me. It's about thinking about what did the other person say? What do we have in common? Where is he coming from? Curiosity goes down when you're so overwhelmed and your focusing ability goes down. So one of the things that in each chapter in on selfie, one point is that children's focusing and adult focusing as well is going down. So there goes all the natural ways that we were being able to think as opposed to multitask about someone outside of ourselves, that other person. It's a very interesting trend that you're looking at, but it's all substantiated. So I'm agreeing with you. Yeah, it needs some breakthrough kinds of ideas and new solutions. And the other thing that adds to the mix, because I've been in the classroom at, you know, all the way from preschool to junior high school to high school to university. And I've watched over the last 40 years, I've watched the changes with attention span and focusing. And especially out of any single thing that stands out to me is intercommunication or, you know, what Gardner talks about intrapersonal communication, the communication with myself. That communication, as opposed to external or interpersonal communication, that change to me is one of the single most significant changes that I've seen in the last 25, 30 years, which is if you don't know or figure out how to talk to yourself and self-reflect and move into higher brain functions, you're cooked. You know, you have no self-reflective metacognitive skill to deal with the incoming problems and chaos as they arise. So the breakdown of this inner communication to me becomes one of the single most substantial issues on the planet today. And it's relative to empathy because if you can't feel or look inside and connect, obviously, you know, you're not going to be able to see the other person's point of view and feel that other person. So that's the big one that I'm concerned about as well as gaining relevance and engagement, inspiration and motivation when you teach. How does one do that beside this ridiculous testing movement that is, you know, like when you think about relevance and engagement and inspiration and motivation, and then you're testing, testing, testing at all ages and stages and levels to meet some academic requirements as well. I'm sure you've You're in the same place. It drives me absolutely insane with regard to the priorities of the current educational system. Yeah, in all fairness, too, though, we parents push that on our school systems. It's a can of worms as to where we're going. If there's any wake-up call from all this pandemic, it's maybe to push the pause button and go, what do our kids really need to thrive? And it's got to be more than a grade point average and an IQ score in order to make it in today's world. It is a very, very uncertain world. When this pandemic goes, it's going to be something else. That's why I think when I was writing this book on selfie, my goal was to go, okay, there's a problem. So what do we do about it? And to come up with a framework of teachable things that we can do at homes and schools. It's not another program, but we can weave it in. And you nailed number five, which is self-regulation. Unless our kids can push the pause button, cope, start regulating and talking to themselves to refocus. All of that learning goes out the door, but also their engagement with each other goes out the door. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such heightened levels of stress going up with our kids. It's dismal. 
Mm-hmm. One of our podcasts, we talked to um, Joe Clement and Matt Miles, and they've written a book called Screen Schooled. They're in a high school, and they tell really pretty heartbreaking stories in some sense. They say that there are actually kids in the school that do not interact with another actual person for the entire day. They come into the school with their phone in their hand. They sit in class with their phone in their hand. They go somewhere to be on their phone in between classes. They go back and they leave at the end of the day. And there's actually no connection, no interaction whatsoever in terms of that. So when you're talking about what's taught in schools right now, do you have a thought as to how empathy and connection should be taught? Are there some things that you've sort of seen and say, this is what needs to change, or this is something we can do? Yeah, well, one of the things that you need to know that before I got into writing this, I worked in 43 countries, and I have worked in hundreds of schools. So what I did was to go in and out of classrooms from K to 12 and see who's doing it right. And the first thing we've got to keep in mind is that don't worry, it's not another program because every teacher is going to pull out their hair. The first thing is, is there connection? That teacher has got to connect with the kids. The cell phone's got to be down. The kids have got to walk in. It's got to be sitting at your desk. And the first question from the teacher to the kids is eyes on me and let's talk. Because I also just did a study with 100 kids. It was an interviews of one hour each with teens across the U.S. of what's the biggest issues that you're seeing and how can we turn the problems around. And the number one thing that they all admitted is they were the most stressed out generation on record. Number two is they also said what you just said. We don't know how to connect with each other right now. Why, I said, because we're looking so much at ourselves that we're addicted to them. We have learned how to text and look down, but we don't know how to look up. So it's retaking it back. I've walked on high school campuses and I walk across before I go do an in-service with the staff and I deliberately just try to say hello to kids. I just walked across. I'm not going to name the high school, but I'm just going to tell you it was in Santa Ana. And as I walked across this high school, I kept saying hello and not one kid said hello. I finally pulled the kid aside said, why doesn't anybody say hello here? And the kid said, it's just not cool to say hello anymore. Now, I was in a Chicago high school, and this is a very private, prestigious, extremely pricey school. The counselor is bringing her Burmese mountain dog to school because she says the kids don't know how to connect and relate with each other. These are kids who have IQs in the ozone layer, but they are so connected to digital stuff, they don't know how to connect with each other. We're losing sight of just basic relationships 101. And when you say, what do you do about it? First of all, you just start talking emotions. How are you feeling today? If kids don't have an emotion check about themselves, they're certainly not going to be able to go and turn and go, oh, she looks upset or he sounds frustrated. You don't learn that in emoji. You learn it by listening to voice tone. Our kids aren't talking on the phone. They're texting to one another. So it becomes when we look at the nine habits of empathy, What fuels it all at the beginning, stage one, starts at age two, and that is look at mommy. Always look at the color of the talker's eyes. That's emotional literacy. My goal isn't just to get to emotional literacy. The ninth habit on selfie is altruistic leadership. So you're going to try to make a difference in the world. Number eight is you have moral courage to be able to step in and speak up if somebody's been treated unfairly. You can't do that if you don't have the first few skills along the way that are all teachable, and we can start weaving them in. Parents at home, we got to get on the same plate of teachers because it's all one process of working together. And we will make a difference if we start being a little more intentional about all of this. I saw a a TEDx that you did, and uh, it was really interesting. You told a story about going into a classroom in Fort McMurray, Alberta. Could you tell that story? Mm, My favorite place. Thank you, Canada. I was working way far north. Oh my gosh. And I'll never forget it because I was doing an in-service with all the staff and the superintendent said, you have got to get into third grade class. I said, why? He said, because they're teaching emotional literacy that you kept saying is so critical in the most unique way. You're just going to love it. Well, how do you turn that down? So I went into the third grade class. And the first thing I've got to tell you is I couldn't find the teacher, which was interesting. But the kids were the most inclusive groups of kids. They were all sitting around a great big green rug. They saw me standing by myself. They padded to the rug and they said, come on over and sit with us. 
And when I sat down, they said, teacher, she's right outside. Why'd you miss her? I don't know. But they began to tell me the rules. And the rules is when the teacher comes in, just keep smiling because she cries real easily. So just keep smiling. And I was a little concerned. And sit on your hands and don't startle because she startles real easily. So I'm sitting there going, okay, but I'm about ready to report it to social services. I'm game. Door opens. Teacher walks in. And my mouth, I'm telling you to this moment, I'm still open. I've never seen a more brilliant 30-minute lesson in my life. The teacher sits in the middle of the green rug. And for the next 30 minutes, emotional literacy is taught by an eight-month-old baby named Clara. Now, the teacher was waiting for the mother to appear who brings the baby in once a month. The class has adopted, that's our baby. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're kidding. No, that's our baby. She comes in. We're watching her grow up and learn emotions. So Clara's sitting there and the first thing, the real teacher, an incredible adult she was waiting, says, how does Clara seem to feel today? And the kids just like, they lean in. And one kid goes, oh, she looks frustrated. Well, how do you know she looks frustrated? Because her hands are like that. They're in a fist. And another kid goes, look out, she's going to cry. How do you know she's going to cry? Because her whole body looks tense. Then one kid goes, what should we do? What should we do? And another kid says, everybody sit real still, start smiling and start swaying. Mm. And one kid says, and let's all sing a lullaby. I'm going, oh my gosh, I could barely keep it together. While the kids are swaying, another kid's kicking me, start smiling and singing, lady. And we start to sing this lullaby. Clara, this baby, doesn't miss a beat. She starts to smile. She soothes. And the kid next to me goes, see, Clara's learning empathy. Oh, my gosh. Here's the key. I asked the kid, why does this work? And a third grader told me the most brilliant thing I've ever heard about empathy. He says, it works because empathy is a verb. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you don't learn it like a worksheet at a word of the month. You got to see it and feel it. And we're seeing it and feeling it from Clara. Mm-hmm. Wow. See, you can learn empathy, but it's got to be real and meaningful. And too often it's like a, a health lesson or it's this month we're going to talk about empathy. When we've got to point out everyday moments from the good news reports that come on. Oh, incredible. News on those TVs can elevate our empathy or take it down. So you point out, oh my gosh, how would you feel if that happened to you? Look what that little boy is doing. He's making all those masks, those first responders. It starts to help the child see that the world is a good place and I can do something like that. You've got to activate it. Reading books, by the way, that's habit number four. Moral imagination, literary fiction. They've actually put us into MRIs and watched our brain waves. And when we hear passages like from To Kill a Mockingbird or All the Light You Cannot See, our brain waves where empathy is actually light up. When we listen to a beach read or 50 Shades of Grey, we just flatline. It does nothing. <laughs> but our children aren't reading so literary fiction nearly enough. They need to be exposed to it. They're so micromanaged mm-hmm. that the kids I interviewed said, we just don't have time to read. Read the stuff we like. The things that activate our children's hearts, we may not be doing nearly enough. And in all fairness, is because we're not looking at what the research and the science says will help us turn this trend around. And there's lots of things. What I tried to do in Unselfie was list about 300 proven ideas by grade levels but you choose what works for you and don't you dare stop because that's how we're going to raise up and draw a strong generation of kids. Well, you know, um, Michelle, we have something called entertainment, I-N-N-E-R, entertainment, that Rob spent 40 years in the media and entertainment industries working on as a researcher and, and as a developmental and educational psychologist. And it's kind of right into what you're talking about because what it is is it's basically picking a child's favorite entertainment, and then translating that in an enriching way to help the parent connect with the child, understand the child, and help the child understand themselves better. And I know um, that Rob has used this in the past with a uh, trial with Baylor School of Medicine that showed that it could be used to help improve eating choices for young children. So this whole idea of using entertainment in some fashion that's a way that's very motivating, I think, to children. At least that's what we found, and we have a couple of episodes on that. 
I agree with you. The other thing that that does that you've just substantiated is that it helps the parent get into the shoes of the kid to figure out where the kid's coming from. And there is nothing better in a toolkit than a parent who has empathy. And what we also seem to be failing to do is identify our kids' natural strengths, which is exactly what that approach is doing. When you figure out what drives your child, where his passions lie, there goes his confidence level, there goes his purpose and meaning. If you keep pushing in that direction, as opposed to the tiger mom approach, no, we're going to do just violin and that's it, and tennis or piano. What happens after a while is the kids also burn out. Many kids are telling me, we just don't have enough time to do what drives or makes us have meaning and purpose. So I love that approach because good entertainment, it could be films, it could be even playing a video game with your kid can drive that so that you begin to figure out where your kid is coming from. There's nothing better for parenting. Well, yeah. The way we set that up, by the way, uh, Michelle, it works really great as we uh, we do something called the choiceful theater. So the parent as part of the story team, we're going to talk about story. Everything's about story. And, the, and we enter the choiceful theater. And the choiceful theater has a backstage, front stage, and future stage. So what mom and dad get to understand over time is what is in that backstage of the child? What are the unconscious? What are the passions? What are the multiple intelligence skills? What's in their backstage that allow them to operate and create their story on the front stage? So once you get that theater metaphor in place, it starts to feel easy and then bring stories into the mix that are fun and entertaining, and then be able to understand what's in the backstage of the child that relates to the story on the front stage. That method seems to work really well with kids and parents and building a story team concept within the family. You know what? It also works really well with empathy. They go hand in hand because there's three kinds of empathy. I want to point this out and then let's get back to exactly what you were saying. Because some parents tell me that they're worried because their kid isn't crying when they're watching Bambi, that they therefore don't have empathy. Some kids have the affective part where you see them get distressed and upset when they're hearing the story or they're into the theater and you can watch it and you can just see them, you know, by taking the eyes and just taking away the tears or they come running in because somebody's been bullied. That's affective empathy. It's actually the first kind of empathy, even younger kids. I remember my, one of my kids, I have three boys. I remember having a really bad day once and I was kind of sobbing because I'd heard my mom was really ill and he jumped up into my lap at age two and put a Band-Aid on my tear. (laughs) But that was affective. But that isn't the only kind. The other kind that stories and theater also do is the cognitive side. That's the perspective-taking side. And what you're also talking about that is brilliant that goes hand in hand with what I'm saying is role-playing. When you can step into the shoes of somebody else and understand where they're coming from, that's the cognitive perspective. Around the age of four, our kids develop what's called theory of mind. They start to understand that he's got a different brain than I do, so we may not have the same thinking abilities. But around the age of eight is when they start to understand that, wow, he really does have different thoughts. And around the age of teens, we've got to tell them, you may not agree with what your friend is saying, but try to understand where he's coming from. Role-playing seems to be the pivotal piece. Theater and acting. Uh, When we look at what Meryl Streep says of why she's so empathetic, it's because she's gotten in the shoes of those characters. Everything you're talking about does that. The third kind is where we're aiming for. The ABCs, we looked at A is affective. We looked at C, which is cognitive. B is behavior. So what if you feel with the person and you see that he's upset? What are you going to do about it? That's compassion in action. 75% decrease in that form of empathy. And that's where we all better be shuddering Mm -hmm. because that's piece that if you see somebody, you don't walk by, you stand in and you speak out. And that's what we need to be start doing a lot more. I love what you're doing. Do you think that what's going on right now, the pandemic and also Black Lives Movement, the movement for social justice, do you see a change in empathy? Well, it's a really interesting dilemma as a psychologist because I've got a stack that you can't see in front of me of all the reports are coming out. So let's look at it a minute because there's some issues that we better be aware of. 
Yesterday, uh, one of the first reports from America came out that was tracking American children. And what we are now very concerned about is that 61% of them say that they're extremely lonely. The pandemic has hit them hard. They're also saying that stress and anxiety is really peaking in them. They didn't have it at this level prior. As anxiety and stress goes up, empathy also goes down. You're in survival mode. You start taking care of yourself. I'm on the Today Show a lot. And the two weeks ago was just questions that came across from parents across, actually across the world. And the the number one question was their own burnout, that the parents were so burned out right now. They were feeling so stressed that they were worried about how they were going to parent their children. They were seeing concerns in their kids. And the top concern of many of their children were kids who were introverts by nature. This the shyer kid, worried to death about going back into a classroom. And there goes that empathy levels again, because they haven't had that practice of the social skills. So the first thing is, we are seeing changes. The UK in April did a first track of just their children, and they saw anxiety levels go up. China did the exact same thing. In the cities where the pandemic hit the strongest, when they looked at the pre and post of the kids, stress and anxiety will weigh up. So when we look at the habits of empathy, what we need to make sure that we are teaching, our children need self-regulation. They need coping strategies to keep that anxiety down so that it doesn't mount into depression. And many of the kids are saying that it is. Number two, we're looking at dismal news. Dismal news. If you sat and watched, I mean, after a while, I'm turning the news off because I saw it impact me. And it creates compassion fatigue. Mm. Compassion fatigue is what our first responders are now facing right now. And that is if you're highly empathetic, which they are, and you're only seeing death and doom, what happens is they start switching off themselves and they become burnout. And that's why we're really worried about the medical profession. But now we're seeing the same thing happening to our children. If you only see the doom and gloom and you only see the steady, what's the death count today? It begins to impact them so they see the world as a mean and scary place. That's the mean world syndrome. Mm-hmm. So you've got to flip that and show them the good news about the world. What's the good news? It could be that you can be a change maker. Yeah, there are people out there who realize that people aren't being treated fairly, that there is huge racial injustice. And now what they're doing, they're protesting. You see the white people protesting with the black people. That can be an amazing point for kids to say, Hey, you may be upset about things, but if you really are upset, you can stand up and speak out and do something about it. And maybe that's what we do. Maybe there's an awareness that we as parents can be having those talks that we kind of put on the sideline. What is all this stuff all of injustice? White parents, we don't do that as well. Mm-hmm. We kind of stay quiet about it. And as a result, it sends a silent, deadly message to a kid that it's acceptable and it's not. So maybe there's a lot of good stuff that we could be doing, and all of it has empathy as a base. Well, I know that one of the things that you've said is one of your points was shifting the focus from I, me, and we to we, us, and ours. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's world-changing if we can do that. And we can. Oh, I'm going to get jitteries on this one. The first thing is, when I started to write on Selfie, I was going through a really tough time. In a six-month span, I told you I worked internationally. I had worked in Rwanda with genocide victims. I'd gone from there to work on the U.S. Army bases and took some side trips in Europe to Dachau in Auschwitz, which did me in. And then I flew the other side, which I was working on the the Far East, and I was sitting in Cambodia on the killing fields. Now, when you look at, oh, my gosh, is there any hope? I was actually on the killing fields. And there was a tree in front of me, this will get Kleenex, that had little ribbons stuck in the tree. And each ribbon was a child who was slaughtered at the tree because they were crying too hard. Oh, my gosh. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. But here comes the silver lining. There's always one. After I was crying so hard with a nosebleed, I walked out of the killing fields, and there was this little picnic table with a few books on it. And one of the books, secondhand book, was called The Altruistic Personality. It was by Samuel Oliner, a social psychologist who at age 12 was a Holocaust survivor. And that is his whole family 
was being shuttled off to a boxcar and his stepmother said, run, run, Samuel, run as fast and hard as you can and go save yourself. So he ran as fast and hard as he can. Perfect stranger opened the door, Christian, Samuel's Jewish, and said, come, I'll hide you. And he was saved by a perfect stranger. What does Samuel Allender do? The best research I've ever seen. And for anybody in doubt, this is why I went, oh my gosh, there's hope. What he started to do was interview dozens and dozens of rescuers, which are hidden. You don't know them, but there's altruists who were rescuers during World War II. An altruist doesn't go for a gold star. They don't want the trophy. They just do it because they know it's the right thing to do. He interviews them all and he discovered that at their base was how they were raised. They all said, when he said, why'd you do it? It was how I was raised. I had to. Well, how the heck were you raised? Three things kept coming up and here's the framework. Number one, my dad and my mom, she always modeled it. She was a model of kindness. The kids saw it over and over again. It wasn't a textbook exam and it wasn't a worksheet. They saw it. Number two, my dad expected it. Social responsibility and empathy were part of the family structure. That would be habit number two of unselfie. They had a moral identity. And number three is there was always opportunities to do good in my family. My mom always had an extra plate for somebody who needed help. We always had to do charitable work. We always did it. And every kid said it was one person, the look in one person's eye. When I helped that person, did some charitable deed, that I saw myself as a person who could do good, the child changed their mindset. They saw themselves as a caring person. Every single rescuer said, it was what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to step in and help. That's what you do. But it was embedded in them from years of being parented that way. I mean, when's the last time you saw a parent with a bumper sticker that said, proud parent of a kind kid? <laughs> it's in dormant mode these days. We've got to start praising our kids for, I want you to be kind. Thank you. That's how we expect you to be in this family. We praise the grade when they come home, what you get. We don't say, what kind thing did you do? Simple little flips will make a big difference. Well, and it sounds like, as you say, it's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing that the parent must model. I mean, we've all known this as kids and growing up. You know, whether your parent thinks that you're looking at them or not, you are always observing their behavior. And clearly, modeling empathy is something that is likely to rub off. Yeah. My favorite group is I speak to parents. I've spoken to actually about a million parents around the world. And the most blow away moment is when I say empathy can be cultivated. Every parent looks at me like dumbfounded. Isn't locked into their DNA? No, it's there. You just got to tune it up. Well, what do I do? What activity should I try? And I always say, you know what? The best empathy lesson is not what you do for the kid. It's what you show your child. Because if you tune it up as your own example, because examples I think of adults right now are lying absolutely the hall of shame. Mm. But if we start tuning up of here's what you can be, our children do copy it and our voice becomes their voice. It's so easy that it's just putting it onto your parenting plate that I'm going to be a little more intentional about tuning up and helping to raise a child as empathetic. I mean, what's your parenting plan? I always ask a parent, Think of your child right now and pretend he's 40. And now you look at your child. What do you want to see in your child? What are the values you really hope now that he's an adult that you want to raise? Mm. I know you want a test score, but is that what you want to see at age 40? What do you want to see in that child? Because if you can identify those values at the beginning, you'll find easy, easy little ways to keep weaving those into day-to-day parenting. Mm -hmm. And that's how you're more likely to raise up strong, caring kid who will want to make a difference in the world. You know, one of the things that you mentioned that you were talking about working with Navy SEALs, and I was thinking, boy, that's interesting if you learn some lessons from the Navy SEALs, because like law enforcement and other areas of the military where you're trained in really not being empathetic, I would think, when you're in the midst of a severe crisis, and you have to maintain a certain amount of control if you're in the military. I was very curious about some of those lessons that may have shown up in that SEAL concept that you mentioned. It was probably the best lessons I've ever learned in my life because they're based in neuroscience and so darn simple and don't cost a dime. 
Remember when I said I was working on army bases? The commanders had asked me to help train ASACS counselors on post-traumatic stress for children. Well, while I was there, the commanders said, you know, you may want to talk to the SEALs. We are retraining them. So I go up to a Navy SEAL, the most elite forces we have in the world, and I said, what are you doing? And they said, well, you know, we're up against some pretty tough times, and I was the first to agree, but they're retraining us so that we keep our cognitive abilities up and our stress levels down. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, when we're going into a battle, you really have to think strong and think where you're going, and the stress can really evaporate you. So we do three things. And they all said, there are three things you can teach a kid. The first one is as soon as we go into a tough spot, we immediately tell ourselves, chill out and calm down. We know our stress signs. So if there's one takeaway here, watch your kids. Because before they go into meltdown, they always do the same thing. And it's different for each child. You'll see some kids, they start to sway back and forth. Or some kids, they grind their teeth. Other kids start to rock or other kids, they will just kind of twine their hair back and forth. What you then do is quietly say, I notice it right when you start to get stressed, you do this. Point out and be aware of each child and your own stress signs because it's a godsend. The godsend is the Navy SEAL knows the immediate stress sign. He immediately tells himself, chill out. And then he says, the first most important thing to do is take a deep breath. I said, really? He said, yeah but you got to do it right. If you take a slow, deep breath from way deep in your abdomen and you ride it up like you're going up an escalator. So I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to ride it up and I'm telling myself, chill out and I hold it. And then I slowly exhale. If you exhale twice as long as you inhale, you get the fastest relaxation process known to man. He says that helps us stay in control. Then the next thing we do, and you got to practice that deep breathing over and over again, the trick number two, they said, is that we come up with a positive affirmation. And I looked at him and he said, I know that sounds touchy-feely, but I mean, we say to ourselves, I got this, or I can get through it, or don't worry, or stay calm. It's one affirmation that each of us chooses that works for us. We take the slow breath, and what happens is we start to calm down. Then the third thing is we chunk our fear, chunk our fear. I said, what does that mean? He said, our goal isn't to get through the whole battle. Obviously we do, but our goal is to get through the first 10 seconds, then the next 10 seconds, then the next 10 seconds, chunk the fear into little parts and you feel successful and confident. You keep going. Now, those are just absolute gold mines for a kid. Mm -hmm. The first thing we do with our children is that we try to bubble wrap them and protect them. Don't worry, sweetheart, I'll do it for you. A child needs to learn you can get through it. So if each kid comes up with, I got this, and you at even age two start saying to your child, you got this, if you keep modeling that affirmation, your child will start mirroring it and saying it in his own head. Then as a family, every kid in the world right now needs to learn that slow, deep one-two breath. Exhale twice as long as you inhale. Practice that five minutes a day as a family so that your kid can do it without you. And finally, anytime that kid feels overwhelmed, I know you're so scared about going outside right now. So right now, what we're going to do is just open the window. Tomorrow, we're going to put your foot out the door. The next day, we're going to walk three blocks. The next day, you're going to go to the mailbox. You chunk the fear. What happens is your child begins to realize, I got this. And that's exactly how you keep your empathy up because you got to keep the stress down. And wouldn't that be applicable to law enforcement? I would think that they'd be using the top techniques from the SEALs. Uh, yes. Actually, I was in a car with some incredible law enforcement officers from Phoenix. They have retrained themselves. The older sergeant isn't using that technique, but all the new recruits coming in, they say, that's exactly when I told them what I was doing. That's exactly what we're doing. We're learning how to cope so we stay cool, we stay cognitive, so that we can be in control in a tough situation. That's brilliant. And I think across the country, that's what we should be doing. Yes, absolutely. Great. Well, that's tremendous information, Michelle, for any family. And of course, as you know, Live Above the Noise is all about protecting and preparing your children and family for the future. 
which is exactly what you're talking about here. So are there any takeaways that you really feel like you want to leave our audience with at this point? Oh, thank you for asking that. I I think the most important thing is please realize how crucial empathy is, that it's never been more as crucial as now. We are clearly seeing it as a dip, but there isn't a parent anywhere that we know that doesn't want to raise a healthy, happy kid who is successful. But that said, please don't overwhelm yourself. Think of one little thing you want to do. We now know that, yes, empathy can be cultivated. And we've talked about a lot of ideas just during this hour, but maybe it's find one thing that will resonate for you. Maybe it's, let's find some more books and kinds of books that we can read out loud together, but don't just do that once. Make it a habit, literary fiction, or you love the Navy SEAL idea. Oh, that was a good idea. I want to teach my kid that deep breathing. Don't just teach it to him once. Make it a family ritual so you do it every day for five minutes a day. Any of the ideas that we're talking about in Unselfie, if you teach it to your child, not only does it benefit your child, it benefits you as well. And if you keep doing it over and over again, the most critical, wonderful thing happens is that your child will use it without you. That's what real parenting is. It's your child to be able to adapt skills that they can be successful in school and in life. It's an uncertain world. I don't think there's anything more critical right now than the habits of empathy. So find what works for you and don't stop. Be intentional about it. That's how we make the world a better place. Well, from all that you've said, it almost strikes me that contained within the seeds of empathy are all the things that we want to be and have our kids be in life. And we just really appreciate all the wisdom and the insights that you've shared with us today. Thank you so much for joining us on Live Above the Noise. Thank you, Michelle. Beautiful, uh, beautiful, beautiful contribution. We really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. I love talking to you. We're needing this more than anything else. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening. And to find out more about Dr. Borba's work, you can go to michelleborba.com. So until our next episode, once again, thanks so much for listening and live above the noise. Hello, everyone. If you'd like to get our email update about new episodes and all the latest information, please sign up for our Noise Watch update on our liveabovethenoise.com website.